are you prepared? <clears throat> are you prepared? It's December 22nd. Are you prepared? So at the beginning of this Advent season, which is the weeks leading up to Christmas in a church liturgical calendar, we had a uh, preparation for Advent service, a gathering uh, at, at, a, at a building near the, the church office, and we heard from different people in our congregation talking about how they approached Advent, and I appreciated something that, that Holly Berry was talking about uh, when she talked about the idea of preparing the room that you're going to have the Christmas tree in, how you do a lot of moving around, right? When Christmas is coming, you're getting ready to decorate, you start preparations simply by moving things around. And think about it, it this is what I did in my, in my house. Usually it's the day after Thanksgiving. Instead of Black Friday going to the mall, I go to the attic. And I start pulling things out, I start moving things around. I want to get a tree as quickly up as I can because I only have a certain number of weeks that it's acceptable to have it up. And I want that up with the lights on, the lights outside on the bushes. I need to get everything arranged. But it involves moving things, moving tables, pulling down bins, rearranging furniture in order to get it decorated. You make preparations for one day, sometimes weeks or over a month in advance. Advent is one of those seasons of preparation. Advent is those weeks leading up to Christmas. And in many ways, what many of us do who have approached Advent as an opportunity in our faith is we take time to slow down, to seek God in a different way, to orient ourselves towards God, almost as a counteract to consumerism and the chaos of all of the calendar stuff that's going on in your, in your weeks and life. The question, though, is in that season of Advent, what are you preparing for? And I think many of us are preparing for Christmas. But that's not really what Advent was about when it was first brought in. It was a preparation for something different. And we get it in our reading today from Isaiah 40. When Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Jesus, invites Israel, his listeners, to prepare. Let me read verses 3 and 4. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The commentators talk about how this was done when in the expectation of a king or an emperor was coming to a city or a village that they hadn't been to in a while, or if a, a new king or emperor had taken over. And they would literally clear the path. They would make sure the road had no more potholes in it. They, they leveled the road leading into the city, leading into the village, as a way to prepare for the coming of the emperor. Advent is a season of preparing not for a baby in a manger, but for a king. It's for God to come as judge, which is hard to hear, and Lord of all creation. And the question that's behind the season of Advent, which we're still in, is are you prepared? And of course, then you have to ask, prepared for what? What is it that you're expecting in life? What is it that you are looking for? When Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ, there was a whole history, a whole story behind what he wrote in his expectations of what God was about to do. 
And we heard it read and sung this morning. The story that we just heard was the story of God. It's the story. It's the story of scripture. It's the story of redemption. And as Christians, we believe it is the story of history. It is the story. It begins with a good God creating the universe and creating us in his image to live in relationship with him. But as we read in Genesis 3 or had read in Genesis 3, we reject God. We turn away from God to live on our own as Adam and Eve did, saying, no, I want to follow my own path. And that's essentially, we talk about sin as choosing your own adventure in life. It's saying, I want to live apart from you, God, and I will be Lord of my life. That's what Adam and Eve did in that first story. They said, nope, I'm going to turn and go my own way. And God essentially says, well, then go your own way. And he, he drives them out from Eden, from the blessed land of his presence. And for some time, we don't know how long, there's an absence of God. Until one night he calls to Abram, an old man. He says, I will make of you a great nation. As many as the stars are in the skies, I will make you this great nation. I will bless you, and through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. You will be my light to the Gentiles, to the world around you. But it took time again, hundreds of years, before Israel finally became a nation and eventually had a king, King David, a man after God's own heart. And God raised up this nation, this great nation of Israel, but very quickly, like Adam and Eve before them and all humanity before them, they turned away from God, trying to live apart from trusting in God fully. And God removes himself from them. They don't have God's presence with them. And it's in the middle of that that the prophets, like Isaiah and Micah, start prophesying a prophecy of longing, answering the call of Israel. Where is God? He said we were going to be a great nation. Where is he now? We're going through suffering right now. Where is God? Where are all these promises he made to us? In Isaiah 40, God speaking through Isaiah gives these words of comfort, literally comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. These are incredibly gentle words. The words of comfort are actually, in, in the Hebrew, a way of talking to somebody and approaching somebody who is grieving death, grieving the death of a spouse or a child. Saying, God is saying, I am coming to bring you comfort. This world is broken and fallen and you are grieving. You are broken and fallen and I am with you. I have not left you. Speak tenderly. You are my people and I am your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. To my people, says your God. He's affirming his covenantal love for them. That my people, your God, is almost like a husband and wife language. And God is saying, I am still your husband. I still love you. Your life may not look like that, but I still love you. He's comforting them and assuring them of his love for them. And it's in that that the prophet 
preaches ahead, saying, one day, one day you will see this in full. What were they looking for? And what did they end up getting? And that's the question we have to ask, is what is it that we are looking for? What is it you are looking for in life? It's a common question I go to in my own head, and I think we should all be asking it, because it's, why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? What is it that you're after in life? Where do you spend all your time and energy chasing? What, what are you looking for? Israel was looking for God to come and bring justice and their word shalom, which basically meant slaughter their enemies and make them great again. God, when you come, we want to be back on the glorious throne. We want to be the greatest nation. What is it that you're looking for? There was a time when I was a little kid when I was looking for parachute pants. Parachute pants are these short-lived uh, vinyl. No, they weren't vinyl. They, they were slippery nylon pants that came in in the early 80s as a part of the breakdancing craze. In third grade, I was desperate for parachute pants. And then eventually, on my birthday, in a package provided by one of my aunts, were parachute pants. Gray, bugle boy parachute pants, the brand. Now the problem was it wasn't as I expected because they came three years after I wanted them. In third grade, I wanted them. By fifth grade, they were out. And in sixth grade on my birthday, I got parachute pants. Sometimes your longings and what you're looking for and expectations aren't met quite the right way. There was another time when uh, my dad packed us into the car and we were going to go to this indoor roller coaster he told us about. I'm like, I'd never even thought of such an idea. I didn't even like roller coasters, but I was like, that's, that's really cool. An indoor roller coaster. And we arrive at this, this gigantic building with a huge parking lot around it in the middle of Maryland. And everyone's going in to this building, clearly for the roller coaster. And we get in there, and it was the Harlem Globetrotters. So, you know, it's, it's like a good show of basketball. It was enjoyable. But the whole time, I was like, where's the roller coaster? The expectations were set a little too high. You know, if, if my dad instead had said, yeah, we're going to go, and, you know, we're going to just go to this dinner. It's going to be a long, slow dinner. And we got to the Harlem Globetrotters, it would have been different, right? Your expectations and what you're looking for sometimes don't match up. Sometimes things don't play out the way you think they're going to. I was looking for Santa when I heard the bells ring. I don't remember which night it was and how old I was, but I was pretty young. I was short enough that I, I had trouble seeing out the window in our, in our upstairs bathroom, which is where I was going to see Santa, because I had heard the bells, and one of my parents yelled, I think that's Santa's sleigh, so I darted out of my bed and ran into the bathroom to look out the window, but as a short kid, and I knew this, and, and the window was up here, I had to climb up in order to see out the window, to see the sleigh go by, and I didn't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it, because you don't know how quick it's going to go by. So I quickly stepped on the chair that was there that was actually a toilet with the seat lifted up and went straight into the toilet with both of my feet. <laughs> I didn't see out the window, but I started bawling at that point, <laughs> just crying. Like, there I am in my pajamas expecting Santa and I get a toilet. Thanks. I'm over it. 
At this time of year, we talk about what we're looking for, and we mix toys and presents and family, but we're also looking for God, aren't we? When most modern people, most people in our culture here are looking for God and looking for something in life, they're looking for this combination of, um, I want to be a good person, I want to live a good life. And I think religion and God are probably a part of that. I need some version of religion, some version of God to give me guidance and, and blessing if I can get that too. Christians claim that they want God. We claim that we want God. We want God. That's what we're looking for. We want to know God more. We want to experience God. We want our faith to be grown. And yet, there's things in our lives that say we don't really want that in full. You know, a, a great uh, descriptor or a, a, a symptom of not really wanting God fully is worry. How do I know? Because when I'm worrying, I'm not trusting God. I don't want what he wants in my life. I want to control it. And to the extent that I'm worried or anxious, I'm clearly holding on to some aspect of what it's supposed to be like. I'm looking for God, but in my own way. And whether you are a Christian or you don't really buy into all this stuff, I would say all of us, if we have some version of God, still mix it with this idea of it, if I have faith and I'm a pretty good person, then if there is a God, my life should have some version of ease. I should be pretty successful, and he's got to answer my prayer. Right? Like, I want some of God in my life so that I can have joy and peace. I want God as part of my life because I feel like he's going to grade on the curve and I'm slightly above average and I feel like if I can stay in his good favor, like I'm pretty good. We want him to show up just at certain times, but not all the time. We'd like him with a white beard and a red suit to give what we need when we pray for it. And our version of God in our heads, whether Christian or not, is often a version of Santa. I've found in my own life that not getting what I'm expecting, not having my prayers answered the way I'm praying them, not achieving the things that I thought God would surely give me have actually been ways where I've experienced him and life more deeply and fully. I know I've talked about it here before, but as a ninth grader, I was devastated when I was cut from the freshman basketball team. And I walked home crying, but made sure nobody saw it, you know. And I, I should have known. I was the, the height of a fifth grader in ninth grade and didn't make the basketball team. I don't know what I was thinking. But it was a part of my whole vision of what my life was about. I was a competitive athletic kid, and I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And while I had some of these other things, I needed athleticism to be a part of that if I was going to apply to the Naval Academy. So that devastating breakdown helped me to rethink who am I and what am I here for, even as a ninth, 10th grader. And you know, I never actually even applied to the Naval Academy. Because I realized after that 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 wasn't my identity anymore. But it took a loss and a grief as a little ninth grade boy. Many of you know that I attempted, spent a lot of time, money, and energy getting a PhD. I do not have said PhD. 
But I did spend all that time and energy to reach that disappointment of, yeah, it's not quite good enough. I have prayed that friends would be healed from their cancer and then buried those friends. And I've found in those times that what I really need is not necessarily what I think I need. And what I'm looking for may not be what I'm expecting. There's something deeper, greater, often through loss and failure. And I think it's because, in my own life at least, I'm more open at that point, less trying to control the outcome and the narrative, and probably because on the far side of defeat, I'm more humbled and a little desperate and not trying to control everything. Isaiah says, prepare the way, but the question is, prepare the way for what? What was God coming to do? Well, we read it in Isaiah 40, the second half of verse two. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. These three things are what God is going to come to do, and he tells Israel, when I come, I will come to end your warfare, to pay for your iniquity, and to give you double. Your hard labor, your warfare will be completed. I'm coming to give you rest, that Hebrew word shalom, which does mean war and suffering will end, but also means for many of us just striving and trying to prove yourself can end. Be at rest. Your iniquity is paid for, your guilt is removed. All of your sin has been forgiven because the debt has been paid is what this is saying. And you will receive double. That ancient world would have understood that because a firstborn son, only a firstborn son, received a double inheritance and double blessing, which meant your wealth, your status in the community, your future was more secure than your brothers and certainly than your sisters who didn't receive an inheritance. But in this passage, God is saying all of you, all of you, men and women, firstborn and 20th born, the wealthiest and the poorest will receive double, an inheritance and blessing from me. And all that God is promising has nothing to do with anything Israel does. It's not because they were good enough or became more religious, it's simply God acting. That's the story of the gospel. It's not what you do, it's what God has done because he acted for you. And then in verse five, it's the assurance of what God is about to do and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. One day, all flesh, all people, all. Israel was not happy with that because they didn't want the Gentiles and they certainly didn't want their enemies to get God's glory, but he said, everyone will experience me. All flesh I'm coming in a way that intervenes and enters your physical lives. What were they preparing for? Prepare the way for the Lord. When God did come 700 years later, 
to bring the salvation that he promised here in Isaiah, it was certainly not as expected. We see this in that first Christmas, that first coming of God. There's poor Joseph, right? Living in a village that's probably, you know, 70 people, 50 people, 100 people. Like the, the average grade, elementary school grade in an elementary school around here, like the fourth grade at whatever elementary school, that's the entire village. You are betrothed to this Mary who all of a sudden says she's pregnant by God. And Joseph, it says in Matthew 1, was a righteous man. Now, we think of righteous as good, nice, kind, but righteous meant he kept the law of God. And there were certain implications of what he should do if his wife was unfaithful. And he was in a conundrum. (laughs) It was a dilemma. Socially, legally, he is a righteous man who wants to remain right before God. And his betrothed wife-to-be is pregnant. And God is saying, trust me, trust me, trust me with what I'm about to do. And he's saying, Joseph, what are you looking for? Do you want to find it on your own or do you want to trust me? Advent and the season of Advent is a season of contrasts. It's a contrast of darkness and light, of rejoicing that the Lord is coming, but watching and be prepared because he's coming as judge and king. It is, a, it is a, a cataclysmic reaction of the past and the future. Here's what God has done, is promising to do, and will do. And it involves a lot of the paradox that is true in Christ. Fleming Rutledge wrote, the utter audacity of the Advent proclamation is that the baby in the manger is the reigning Messiah, that the crucified Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and the one who is to be delivered up to the rulers is the one who will one day dispose of all the earthly powers. You know, there's a pattern in all of this. The pattern is God does exactly what he says in a way that no one ever seems to expect. God does exactly what he says he will do, and it is always in a way that no one ever seems to expect. That should certainly cause us to question, am I expecting the right sort of things? What you are expecting affects how you prepare. If you are expecting to decorate your house with a small tabletop tree on a side table, then all you have to do is remove the lamp. But if you're expecting 70, 80 people to show up at your house for a Christmas party, you might have to move some furniture, maybe even all the furniture. What is it that you're expecting? I think most of us expect a normal life, a little bit of success, and to be graded on the curve. And if that's what you're expecting in life, then here's how you're going to prepare. You're going to prepare a little bit of room in your life for a little bit of God and religion. Like, preparing the wall for a new painting or preparing that room down in the basement for a new roommate. A little bit of rearranging, preparing, something little. But as C.S. Lewis points out, oftentimes we think we want a little bit of God in our life to do some rearranging, like kind of like my kitchen needs remodeled 
come on in, God, and remodel. And God is up to something altogether different. Here's what Lewis writes. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Advent's claim is that God is coming. In fact, is already here, but not in a manger. And he's offering us, even now, his rest, his shalom, his forgiveness, his double portion, a revelation of his glory and presence and transformation in our lives. And like the prophet, the call for all of us is, will you prepare? Make some room in your life for what God wants to do probably make a little more room than you think because it's quite likely that when he does what he says he will do in you, it will not be what you expect. Let's pray. God, this Advent and Christmas, as we return again to the baby born in Bethlehem, open our eyes to the greatness and glory of the God of the universe and all that you have promised to do and have done through him. May we prepare a room in our hearts. In fact, give him the whole thing. In Jesus' name, amen.